Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Jan Arden, singer, actor, animal rights activist, and now novelist. Jan will be here to tell you how she wanted to use her first novel to talk about her love for animals, but not in a preachy way, and how fiction can be the best way to change someone's mind. I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Hey, I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We are the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. I would die for you. I would die for you. bit of Jan Arden's I Would Die For You from her debut record from 1993 called Time For Mercy. Big record for Jan, set her on her way to not just being a beloved musician, but kind of a beloved figure in Canadian culture. Jan's a multi-platinum selling, multi-award winning artist. She's an inductee into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. The thing about Jan is that she's hard to keep in a box. She's always doing something different. Like she has a she has a podcast, which is largely about mental health. She has a, a TV show called Jan, which is like a sitcom about about her life. And now she's just released her latest book. It's called uh, The Biddlemores, and it's a novel. She wrote a novel. So Jan dropped by the Q Studio the day after the Giller Prize, which is like the biggest night for Canadian novels. We talked about the book. We talked about why she wanted to write it. Why she wanted to write about animal rights through the lens of love and compassion, and why she wanted us to read this and maybe start to have compassion for people we deem uh, the worst people on earth. Here's my conversation with Jan Arden. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you're here, and I really like the book. Thank you. So what are you... <laughs> well, no, because just to preface, as we sat down, he goes, I want you to know that I did say something about your book at the... Giller Awards last night. I hope you'll take it in the spirit to which it was meant. I don't know what you're going to say. Well, what I was going to say is, and again, you know, you know, I'm, I'm my fondness for you. Yes, of course. This is what I said. They said to me, uh, what are you reading? Mm-hmm. Right? And these days, what I'm reading is what I'm reading for work. Yeah. So I said, I'm reading uh, Jan Arden's new book. I said, I picked it up and I thought, oh, Jan Arden wrote a, a new book. It must be a new memoir. Oh, Lord. Yep. So I, I picked it up and I realized it's a novel. And I have to tell you, I didn't have high expectations mm. for a musician to be writing a novel. As you shouldn't. This is what I said. I said, I didn't have high, I, I didn't have high expectations. And it's really good. Oh. And, and it, I 
breezed through it and I couldn't put it down and I and I really loved it. So really it's great, Jane. Congratulations on it. Only took me fifteen years. Well what what made you want to write a novel in the first place? Don't know. Don't know what I was thinking. What do you mean? I honestly I don't know what I was thinking. I was at my friend's, an ex's, as a matter of fact, in Nashville. I was in this little studio and I thought and I was working on music and I had my laptop and I kinda had this idea. So I started tapping out this little idea, which is basically the beginning of this book, is quite unchanged. And 10,000 words later, you know, and 10 hours later or whatever, I had this little story in my head. And then, of course, life picked me up. And then I would write, you know, 1,500 words here. And then I would have to read all the way back, like, what the hell is this thing about? I've forgotten it. Yeah, year four, and people were starting to make fun of me at year six. And then I wrote, you know, Feeding My Mother, and If I Knew Then, in between that, because it was probably 2008, 2007 when I started it. And then I just finally, the last three, four years, I thought, I have to get this done. We should set up the story a little bit. Like, can, can you, what's, sure. your, what's your elevator pitch on the story? My about? elevator pitch is a very miserable man and wife, mm-hmm. past, far past middle age, mm. had a daughter. The daughter had a daughter, very young. Mm. And uh, that's kind of when the story takes a twist. There's a cold case involved, uh, alcoholism involved, miscarriages, uh, kind of the backstories of what makes people miserable mm. and what also fills them with light and what, how do people maintain hope in circumstances that seem anything but hopeless. And I, I so, to, and, and just jumping forward, there's animals on this farm. There's three cows, Krilla, Dally, and Burl, dairy cows. So they've been giving up calves for years and they're getting tired out. And um, the the cows sort of take on this whimsical thing. They don't talk to people, but they talk amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. There's a cat that talks that's quite boastful little mm-hmm. cat. An orange thinks, cat. Thinks, or, you know, that she knows everything. And so you have to suspend your imagination a little bit. But the story, and a lot of writers talk about this, and I'm, I certainly don't feel like I'm in any kind of literary club, but I've read so much about the writing process and um, writers saying that at some point when you're creating these characters, they start talking for themselves. You're just sitting there with your pencil in your hand going, jotting down what they want you. Oh, and put and put this down, write this down. Oh, and then I say, and then, and so you're just, you feel like a, a completely, uh, you have this complex that you're not really writing it at all, that you're just the purveyor of these words. So it was it was an adventure and I'm really proud of it. I think the story is really different and unique and it is a fairy tale of sorts. I don't know where it takes place. Prairie somewhere. I don't know what year it is. All I know is that I couldn't deal with cell phones mm-hmm. and computers and DNA. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have that on the table. The story would never have worked. How would you feel about reading a little bit of Forrest? Let's do it. What should we do? I have it. Sure. Uh, I have it. I have it uh, bookmarked there off the very first page. Harp Biddlemore is a horrible man. The third generation of Biddlemores to farm a miserable piece of land in the far northern parts of what everybody around here just calls the Back Hills. It wasn't always miserable. Not so long ago, it was lovely and green and full of so much good. Now it's 167 acres of mostly bare dirt and rock and clay and ancient dead tree stumps that poke out everywhere like tombstones. 
On the other side of Harp's jagged barbed wire borders, things are still green and lush and teeming with life. At least they are in the middle of a back hill's spring. Ancient blue spruce trees thrust themselves out of the dark, rich earth, straight and tall. Flowers bloom and birdsong winds its way around every long blade of grass, and butterflies flit and fat black and yellow bumblebees hover. But most of what Harp barely manages to husband on his sorry piece of earth is misery. I think it would have been easy um, for these characters, um, Harp, Harp Biddlemore and Mrs. Biddlemore, who's never named, by the way. She's just, I didn't give her a name. Was that, was that intentional? I didn't think she deserved one. So these, these, these are sort of um, reprehensible characters. But Terrible. Like, but like you said, you want to investigate what makes people mm-hmm. um, so filled with misery. Well, hopelessness and, and just the fatigue of being alive, I think. Why is that interesting to you? Why are you interested into why awful people become awful people? Because I've just seen it so much in my own life. You know, I, we've talked about this before. My brother spent almost 30 years in jail for a murder that he, caveat here, that he says he didn't commit. And I have no opinion on it either way. But this was a young man who was such a smart, charismatic, nice-looking boy. And he was abused by someone somewhere along the way. He won't say what or who or how. And I just look at the swath of unhappiness and terror that he cut through the world until he was finally incarcerated for a long period of time. My dad, really good guy, hardworking guy, alcoholism. I don't know where, you know, the world owed him something. I don't know what, but he was a very frightening man. I think there's bits and pieces of him that are Harp Biddlemore. But, you know, Harp loses his father as a very young boy, uh, very happy. The farm was in such a great way, and, and it just kind of fell apart when he died. Uh, Mrs. Biddlemore just wanted a child so badly and never got to the top of the mountain. Mm. And I think that chipped away at her. It was, you know, three or four or five pregnancies. And then it just she just decided, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a baby no matter what, but we'll just have to do it in another way. What what made you want to give animals? I mean, uh, the the animals in the story, as you mentioned, have they can't speak to the other no. humans, but they can speak with one another, and mm-hmm. they have they have autonomy, and they advocate for themselves with one another. And you describe the you know the the cruelty that they are they live under. You yeah. know, their, their calves being taken from them, oh. their parents being nailed up to a to a barn, um, their children being drowned if they're if they're cats. What yeah. what what made you want to give the uh, animals in the story this voice? Well. There's so much abject animal cruelty on this planet, and it's there's eight eight billion of us now, and you know people for the most part are still eating meat two or three times a day, and it's so interesting to me to hear some of the comments of people like, oh, I just couldn't get past, you know, the cow being burnt with a cigarette or you know being abused, and I'm thinking, well. Do you have any idea what you are involved in with how you eat and how you make your way through the world? But the choice is, I'm just showing you exactly what could happen. And this is a small family farm, but an industrial farming, and it drives me crazy. So I really did want to give these animals human qualities, empathy, kindness, caring, humor. And I just wanted people to care and not be apathetic about animals and that they they do talk to each other. 
They are communicating with you. They have friends. Cows, it's been proven over and over and over again that they have families and friends and they grieve when somebody's lost and they grieve their calves being gone. You know, they'll moan out in a field for weeks on end. And it's just this cycle that goes on and on and on to support dairy. So in my way, I was able to advocate in a fictitious story that hopefully is a compelling story where people will think twice about it. You know, the people here are the bad people, although there's good people here, but they're the bad people. They're the, the menaces. And I want you to hate them so much. You know, I, I just want them to be hated and I want you to cheer for the cows. So I had to make it really clear. Is it challenging to speak on behalf of animal rights? I mean, I, I got to speak to Katie Lang one time, who is also from Alberta, and I know that Alberta gets a bad rap um, uh, a lot in national media. And I wanted to say, as a they Newfoundlander, I, I've had I have great friends from Alberta, and I've and I have I've had great nights of some of the greatest of my nights of my life in Alberta, and played some really lovely gigs in Alberta. But Katie Lang talked to me about when she was first um, speaking about animal rights, being in Alberta. And she the said, meat stinks thing. She said she found that she found it even harder. Do you do you find that too? No, I, 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 I don't find it difficult. For one thing, uh, for the record, I love Alberta so mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. It is the most beautiful, majestic province, and it's filled with really, really forward thinkers and liberal thinkers and kick-ass people that are out there doing good work and creating great art. You know, people are amazed that I've stayed there, and I have every intention of staying there, despite, you know, the government that's presently at the helm. Um, I think that's when you really have to stay. When when things are precarious, that's when you really start speaking up. I cannot stand people that have no opinion at all. It, it just, it's... If you're worried about what people are going to say about you or to you on social media and the vitriol that comes at you, I don't worry about that for a second. Twitter is my bitch, for one thing. And I get into a lot of fights on there, but I always win. Well, do you like doing that kind of stuff? I find Twitter I, really bad, man. I find it really bad it, for my it's mental getting, health. It is getting bad, but I think you have to have a certain personality for it. Uh, it does not bother me at all. The people generally that throw out vitriol have absolutely no defense. They probably have never traveled anywhere. They're living in their, uh, these are generalizations, but they're eating cheesies in their mother's basement with their Game Boys. And as much as it's a generalization, when you click onto these profiles and see rebel flags over and over and over again, and F. Trudeau over and over and over again, the narrative is the same. The voices are the same. There's no opinion. It's just this repetitive thing. All I ever have to say is, Boy, foreplay has sure changed since my day. Are you asking me out for coffee? <laughs> they remove the comment. They disappear. They, they scuttle away because everything in their in their timeline is usually directed at public people, so other artists, other celebrities, and it's because they feel invisible. And there's no one to listen to them or to. There's no one that sees them. And so it just turns into this anger and this hatred. But I don't mind it. I think there's a way to use social media that can be really effective. Well, it, it felt like in this book you were you were making, I mean, in addition to writing a great sort of mystery story and a great sort of fairy tale, there was sort of a plea for the, the way that we think about animal welfare in this, like mm-hmm. kind of snuck in there, which yeah. I think is really the way to get a message across is to kind of sneak it in. Well, just to care. Yeah. You know, apathy is the one thing 
whenever we're talking about marginalized people, when we're talking about animal welfare, anyone, the LGBTQ plus, you know, two-spirit community, whenever you have a group of animals or people or speciesism or, you know, all this stuff, it's apathy that makes bad things happen to people. When you turn away and you don't care. And we know that from watching history unfold. We know how it works. If you get frightened about expressing an opinion, then you're going to become part a bigger part of the problem. So I don't mind talking about it. I, I, so far, my friends haven't left me. Always like, a good sign. Oh, when they come to my house, it's just like, they, what are we eating? I'm like, well, just you wait. <laughs> Do you like quinoa? Well, I it, there's so much great food out there now. It oh, is it's comes, so much better than it, it was 10, 20 years ago. Uh, you could you could skidoo uh, riding behind a skidoo on a piece of cheese. You you could <laughs> a vegan cheese back in the day. <laughs> now it's a little more edible. You you spent thirteen or fourteen years writing this book. A lot of stuff happened in those 13 or 14 years. Um, you got sober. You had a separation. You lost both your parents. You made it through lockdown. Um, did having this book in the background, what? No, it's true. I'm just thinking about all the, just life. It was a big 13, 14 years. Well, I bet yours has been just the same, Tom. Yeah, a lot has happened to me in yep. the last 13, 14 years. Sure has. What has, uh, has having this book in the background, being able to peck away at it, given you something through Fantastic. that? Fantastic. Yeah. It really was fun, and I learned a lot. I know fun seems like a kind of a trite thing, but it was so interesting to me just to learn how the paragraphs kind of work themselves together and how timelines can work together. And just, it was a challenge, and I like that. I like to learn. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter how old you are. I'm, um, I've already started another book. It's completely different. It's turn of the century. It's, you know, nuns and bad guys and gold gold miners. So it's a completely different thing. But I have such a better mindset and a better set of tools to approach telling this story than I did, you know, 15 years ago. So now I'm, I'm settled into this. I really love it. Does the scratch an itch creatively that writing music doesn't? I think so. I think it it really settles me down. I'm one of those people that's always, I can't sit and watch a whole movie on the way through. I'll get up and putter and I'll start cleaning a drawer and then I see something else on the counter and I drift over to that. And my dog's always just like, can you just sit down for two seconds? But this did make me stay in place for three or four hours at a time. And I was just fascinated by how a story unfolds itself and my my mom's words always ring in my ear, but this particular thing she said, you don't have to be a great writer to tell a great story. And because she knew about this when she was still alive. Mm-hmm. I talked to Susanna Hoffs one time who wrote a novel and she said it I in the- I think I knew that. Yeah, she said it in sort of the music world, a rom-com set in the music world. Was there ever something drawing you that way to write a, to write a novel? Or is, is there something drawing you that way to write a novel about the music world no. you live in? No, no I, don't, I don't find it particularly interesting. I, I like writing about times where there's no cell phones and where people are outside. And, and I think I know rural Canada. I know living in the prairies. And I just, I just grew up, I was raised by the trees and the dirt and the rocks. And literally, I had a foot in the middle of my back kicking me out the door. And you did too, I bet, Tom. Mm-hmm, that's right. Because it's just, our parents didn't have time. And we only had two television channels. I sound like I'm 100 years old now. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just, I was outside. And I know that, I know what, just what it feels like. I can just feel the wind in my face. And I think it's affected me as a songwriter as well. How do you mean? Just just the the themes, they're always of yearning and loneliness. And 
unrequited love and, you know, wondering what happens to you when you die. And, you know, I think all those themes stayed with me from the time I was a kid making up songs in my parents' basement. Mm. And I still really love it. I really love music. And I can't believe that I've spent almost a half a century making my way through the world. So this is definitely a, a vanity project for me. And I know that I have an advantage. I know that I'm privileged when it comes to having the ear of an editor, and an exceptional one at that. I know that I do, and I never take that for granted. I think I can have those opportunities, but I have to deliver and make sure that I do all the right things and maybe work harder than other people to do it. The 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 connection I would make um, is that the, the songs that you uh, have written – are often um, people who feel unseen and offering them a great sense of compassion and love. And I think I, I saw that in this book as well. Well, thank you. I've always said I'm, you're never going to hear me at a rave, but you'll definitely hear me singing in a minivan. <laughs> you know, I'm always thrilled when I hear one of my songs walking through the <laughs> casino in Vegas because I'm like, yes, I am practically pop material here <laughs> you know yeah could I, I be your girl is and they're playing slot machines they have no idea that the girl that's wrote it and sung it is standing beside them playing quarter slots i, I got that from this book as well i'm glad it's it's a really beautiful book jane congratulations on it well Thank done you. hide your heart under the bed and lock your secret door wash the angels from your head won't need them anymore Thanks so much to Jan. I mean, what do you want? Jan is so good. I feel like I could just sit down and go like, hi, Jan, and then go out for a smoke. And she just, you know, she would just carry the interview by herself. She's really incredible. Uh, Her new uh, book is called The Biddlemores. It's out now. Good for for your Christmas shopping. The other conversation we have up today is with Dennis Goulet, the Canadian filmmaker, the Cree Métis filmmaker from Saskatchewan, who directed two episodes of the final season of the critically acclaimed show Reservation Dogs, and she was asked by the creator, Starlin Harjo, to direct the episode about residential schools. And she did it by using, like, old horror films as a lens. Anyway, you just you got to hear that conversation with Dennis. Go check that out wherever you got this podcast. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.